You know, it's obvious that every tourist destination wants their guests to have a happy experience, but few places do that as well as Disney World in Orlando, Florida. When Disney World visitors were surveyed, 75% said they were very satisfied with their experience. Did you know the Magic Kingdom Park at Disney World gets around 21 million visitors every year? And if you combine all the Disney parks, it's around 58 million people each year. And people keep coming back. And for anyone with kids, it's a no-brainer. That's where the kids want to go. My guest today is Trisha. She and her sister, Heather, and their mom and dad would make trips to Disney World every year. It was a family tradition that they all looked forward to. They knew the layout of the Magic Kingdom by heart, and it didn't matter that the rides and the attractions and the fireworks were the same as when they were there the year before. It was their place. But there was one trip to Disney World that was not like any of the others. Real people in unreal situations. There is a girl hanging by her broken leg from the telephone wire. And I called 911 and I said, I found a baby. I turned around. I see a gun pointed at me close enough I could touch it. She would hold our heads underwater all the time. He levels the gun, pulls the trigger, and I go down. Her eyes were full of tears. She didn't want to leave us. My hair catches on fire. I swear to God, this is this image is burning my head for the rest of my life. I'm Scott Johnson, and this is What Was That Like? You know, I'm talking with you today, but pretty soon people are going to realize this story is really about your dad. Can you just kind of give us a quick picture of who your dad was. My dad was awesome. And it's hard to talk about my dad without sharing a little bit about what he looked like. So he was tall, heavy set. When he was younger, he had curly black hair, uh, which grayed once he got a little bit older. And he always worked. He was a really hard worker. Most of his life, he worked in the produce marketplace just outside of Boston, and he had a Boston accent. I remember he would work early mornings, every morning, and deliveries of fruit and vegetables would come through the marketplace. He would be ordering fruit and vegetables for uh, supermarkets and you know, they would be loaded on trucks. Later, he drove those trucks and everybody knew him. He was a loud and quick-witted presence and a big smoker. He smoked two packs of Larks a day, which I don't even know if they still, still sell them. But I have a pack of his Larks that um, I keep. And I remember him just being silly uh, and quiet in other times. Yeah, it sounds like in a job like that, you almost have to be loud and extroverted because there's so much action and things happening all the time. Yeah, it was a very entertaining place to visit when I was younger. It was like being backstage at a theater production. Your mom and dad met up and they got married and that's when they discovered Disney World. How did that happen? They met in 1980, and they were married that same year. So my mom is a singer and a bass player in a band, the same band for over 40 years. And they do covers of memorable songs. They used to play a lot of weddings and a lot of clubs. And one night, my mom was playing at a club where my dad was working as a line cook at the time. And he asked her out. And that was that. They fell in love. And later, we used to joke that the Beatles song, Obla Di Obla Da, was about my parents because 
if you know the lyrics, uh, one of them worked in a marketplace and the other was a singer in a band and they had a couple of kids, which in our case was me and my younger sister. And they honeymooned at Disney World. Was that just by chance that they went there on their honeymoon or had either one of them been there before that? My mom went, I want to say when she was in high school on a class trip, she went to Disney World in Florida. My dad had never been. And so when they were thinking of a destination, my mom suggested Disney World. So it was my dad's first time and my mom would say, she didn't know if he even liked it because he didn't give much of a reaction. She would say, he didn't say anything. And later she realized that he was overwhelmed. And I think part of that was he had a tough upbringing. And I think seeing the imagination and the fantasy of something like Disney World, which is, you know, when you first see Disney World, it's a it really strikes you as just a very delightful, fanciful place. I think he found a little bit of safety in that. And he loved my mom so much that he was overwhelmed with, with I think, love and, and joy. It's called the happiest place on earth. Everything is over the top and overwhelming and big and happy. And yeah, I can kind of see why he would have that reaction. Yeah. You guys kind of made that your family destination every year. It's true. I mean, wasn't it? Disney World was kind of a big part of your family. Is that, would that be accurate? A huge part. We went to Disney World as a family almost every year. And my dad wasn't a Disney movie fan. He was a Disney Park fan and loved the music. So even though he wasn't, a Disney movie watcher, the score from so many of the animated movies, Aladdin in particular, he loved, as well as the original music from the Disney rides. We would go in the pool. Uh, in addition to my mom being in a band, she was also a music teacher. She taught children in public school music, and she also gave music lessons. So our vacations happened every August because my sister and I were out of school. My mom wasn't teaching. And we would talk about going to Disney from the time we landed home from the last trip until the plane ride for the next trip. You mentioned you got what's what you called the vacation planning videos in the mail. Yes. And I'm not familiar with that. What was that? Is that something Disney sent out? Yes. So... This was so normal for my sister and I, and then as we talked about it, as we got older, it is very unique to us, but Disney World, I'm guessing their marketing team would make these 30 or 40 minute advertisements around, come to Disney World, here's what you can do, and they were well produced, and they would talk about the different hotels and the different parks where you could eat. And my dad would order them, I believe, through, at the time, travel agents. And we would get them sent to the house, and we would watch them as a family. And at one point, we must have had dozens of these VHS tapes that we would just put in, you know, to watch at dinner. And this is, so this is kind of crazy. He would play games with my sister and I, like a quiz, where he would say, you know, you're standing in front of the castle. How do you get to Space Mountain? And my sister and I would say, oh, you know, you go this way, this way, this way. And, you know, the best possible route to get to a particular ride. He just always wanted to relive what it was like to be there. Did you just go to Disney World, like the Magic Kingdom, or did you go to the other places like Epcot and some of the others? We did. So we went to Magic Kingdom, Epcot. MGM Studios, which is now Hollywood Studios, and later Typhoon Lagoon when they made that water park and Animal Kingdom. But the favorites were definitely Magic Kingdom. Polynesian Hotel was the hotel that my parents wanted us to stay at most frequently. Now it's, it's outrageous in pricing, but we were able to make it work years ago. And Epcot was another big one that we loved. Can you talk about your dad's health as it 
began to decline? He is half Italian and has the large appetite to kind of prove it. We all do. And he developed diabetes when I was little. I don't remember how old I was. It was just always, when I think of my dad, I always remembered him being diabetic and he would inject insulin, but he wouldn't make any lifestyle changes. And when I mentioned that he had a tough upbringing, his dad, my grandfather, was an alcoholic and a pretty violent one. And I think that my grandfather's alcoholism may have been passed down, in a sense, as a substance abuse disorder for my dad, and that drug for my dad was food. So it made him happy. It may have triggered some type of endorphins or dulled pain, and that was the way that he liked to share conversations with people was over food or his own form of entertainment was over food and his health continued to decline with his diabetes into my 20s and eventually he needed a kidney transplant and he refused to take a kidney from myself or my sister or my mother he wouldn't let any of us get tested because you you and Heather were both adults now right so yes. you could have if you were a match, you could have donated. Yeah, absolutely. And we would have donated. But there were two reasons why he refused. And one was because he was afraid if something ever happened to my sister or I, and we needed our two of our kidneys, he did not want to put us in any type of jeopardy. And the other reason was because he wasn't going to change. So why take a kidney that he was going to waste, for lack of a better phrasing? And that was hard to kind of watch your parent make that decision around just knowing that he was going to live out his life his way, but all of the medical trauma that went along with it. It's tough being on a kidney waiting list. Yes. Because you just never know. You you may get one soon, you may never get one. How long was he on that list? Months. And he was on dialysis for months. And dialysis is is difficult because you spend the day or he would spend the day at a dialysis clinic and for a couple days after he would be exhausted. And then as he started to feel better, it was time for him to go back to dialysis. And it's wild to think that it was his choice. He, he wouldn't, he wasn't the type to listen to reason around this. I think he was a complicated individual. And so one evening he went out to dinner with my mom. I can't remember if my sister was with them or if she was out. I know I was home. Uh, I still lived with my parents. And I got a phone call at the house, and it was a hospital, their hospital. And they said, we have a kidney for Paul, my dad, and it was through a cadaver donation. So this individual chose to donate their kidney, and it matched to my father in their database. And so they gave a call and I answered, thank goodness. And I was clueless because I said, oh, my dad's out. He'll be back later. And the person on the phone said, you need to get your dad right now and get him to the hospital. And that's when it hit me. And I called the restaurant. I got a hold of my family. They came home. Because it was before cell phones. Yes. It Well, it wasn't quite before cell phones it was it was definitely a time where it was less common to have a cell phone on you all the time so you had to call the restaurant and get their attention that way i did and then they had to leave and come right home to get i think they got like a change of clothes and to say goodbye to me and my sister and my dad 
was a great dad. He did the best he could. And he wasn't a very um, I love you type of dad, wasn't a big hugger, that sort of thing. So I remember him in the car and me at the window of the car. And I said, I love you. And his reply was, okay. And I, that's how I knew he was going to survive that transplant. Because if he said, I love you back, I, I knew something else was going on. But he just very matter-of-factly, okay. And I said, all right, he's going to be okay. It's, it's just funny hearing that, that interaction, that dialogue. Because some people, if you say, I love you, and they respond, okay, some people would be offended or insulted. But you knew your dad. You knew it was the way he was. Yeah. Yeah. It calmed me down. So he got the kidney. He got the kidney. And it worked beautifully. And he still wouldn't change anything about his lifestyle. No matter what we did or said to him, he was stubborn. I mean, we stopped buying him cigarettes once, and he would still go out and, and get them himself. You know, when I would run errands or something, he would say, oh, get me, get me a pack of larks on, on your way back. And I would, I would do it. And we stopped. We all made the commitment not to, to try to help him quit. And it didn't matter. He was going to go out himself and get him then. Because he's a diabetic, he attempted to make maybe very minor changes but at the end his diabetes took his right leg uh, so he had an amputation and he had neuropathy which is something that causes weakness and numbness in his limbs so instead of using a prosthetic limb he had to use a wheelchair or a scooter then it started getting more difficult for him because we're from Massachusetts, the winters were really hard on him, and he loved the sun. So he really wanted to go to Disney World more and more consistently as his health declined. Was he still able to keep working at this time? He worked for as long as he could, and then between the kidney transplant and then the loss of his limb he had to stop working and he tried to um, partner with a travel agent because he knew so much about Disney. He thought he could be helpful arranging vacations from other people or for other people. And unfortunately that, that didn't work out because his neuropathy would make it difficult for him to type sometimes. So he had difficulty with mobility. He had difficulty typing. But if he wanted something, he would still get it so he could order his own food. If he wanted to eat something, he would order it to the house. And then he would take his scooter down to a convenience store at the end of our... We lived on a very busy street. He would take his scooter down to the convenience store and he would knock on their window and they agreed to give him his cigarettes and bring out his change because it wasn't wheelchair accessible. He basically said, your, your store isn't wheelchair accessible, but it's fine by me. I won't make a big deal to the city. When I come a knocking, I give me a couple packs of larks. You know, here's the money. Here's the change. So they would do a deal on the sidewalk of the convenience store. That's how stubborn. He was almost like, I dare you to try and change who I am. And it was really frustrating. But at some point, we just decided to accept that this is how he was going to live his life. And we didn't want to isolate ourselves from the relationship we had with him. Like, tough love didn't work. So my mom, my sister, and I just, it was tough, but we, we did our best I'm just trying to put myself in your shoes. And it, I, I mean, your frustration, it was so obvious that, I mean, you see him and his health declining and it was as if he didn't care about it or as if he didn't want to live long enough to see, you know, to stay with his family longer. That had to just be 
terrible for you to to try to deal with. It was. It really was. And for his siblings, he's one of four, and they also tried to intervene. But it's difficult to articulate to those who haven't met him, but that that's Paul. And it was either love him as he is or turn your back on him. And my family wasn't going to do that. So we kind of watched him self-medicate and we did our best to love him. And we did our best to get him to Disney as often as we could. Did you ever ask him, Dad, don't you want to keep living? Don't you want to stay with us? I did. I did get up the courage. And he was very vocal that he was going to live his life the way he wanted to live his life. And that hurt. I think something deeper was going on with his mental health. But I did at one point come to the radical acceptance of he's not going to live long enough to see my sister and I get married or my sister start a family. And so I asked him, Dad, what do you want us to do when you pass? It was half joking. And he responded, kind of half joking. He said, cremate me, throw me in Disney World. And I said, okay. And I knew that that's what he wanted. And it didn't surprise, his answer didn't surprise me. Yeah, you could have predicted that, I'm sure. Yeah, very much. I don't know how many other people do this, but I like to plan my weekly meals. Maybe I'm just weird, but I like quick and easy. That's just one of the benefits you can get with Cook Unity. Go to cookunity.com slash what or enter code what before checkout to get 50% off your first week. One of the dishes I recently had was the Green Goddess Falafel Bowl. Oh, I loved it. The falafel was seasoned perfectly, and I love how crispy it is on the outside, but really moist on the inside. It's a signature dish of Enat Admoni. She's known around the world as a chef. You've probably seen her on TV. And her dishes are made right here in Florida, so I'm supporting local business, and I love that. And the convenience of Cook Unity is crazy. I mean, I've got podcast episodes to produce. I don't have time for cooking. These meals are delivered fully cooked. So when it's time to eat, I pick a meal based on my mood for that day. I heat it for a few minutes and enjoy. The menus are updated every week, so there's always something new to try. You can choose from over 350 meals based on your dietary needs or taste preferences, or go wild and have Cook Unity pick for you, because every meal is just amazing. Make the best meal plan ever with the convenience, chef-level quality, and endless variety of Cook Unity. Go to cookunity.com slash what, or enter code what before checkout for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using code what or going to cookunity.com slash what. Something I've been recently making a deliberate effort with is to read more. There are lots of books I want to read, and I try to read every day, even if it's just a few pages. That little bit each day adds up, and it can make a big difference. It's like taking care of your gut. Even though it's not big, it supports the health of your whole body. Seeds DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic benefits not just your gut and your heart, which aren't outwardly visible, but your skin too, which you can see. Every morning it's the same thing. Two capsules of Seed DSO-1. And sometimes I wonder, is it normal to feel this great? It helps support digestive health with optimal gut bacteria levels. And thankfully that's all backed up by science. And all the supporting data is on their website. If you're trying to avoid sugar, soy, peanuts, or gluten, you're good to go. And I was reading the literature and I thought, you had me at vegan, because it's that too. And if you have kids, DSO-1 is the first multi-strain symbiotic shown to be tolerable and health-promoting in a cohort of children aged 3 to 17. And you can use this promo code to give it a try. Trust your gut with Seeds DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic. Go to seed.com slash what and use code 25what 
to get 25% off your first month. That's 25% off your first month of Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic at seed.com slash what, code 25what. He decided to spend uh, most of the winter in Florida at an extended stay hotel, which was near Disney property. He would have loved to have moved down there. Uh, there are a lot of pieces to that, though. My mom was a teacher, so she would need to get licensed in the state of Florida in order to continue teaching music. She would need to quit her band, and she would need to leave her own support system because with my dad being unable to work, she was both the primary breadwinner and also a primary caretaker of my dad. My sister and I helped, but my mom was his partner, you know, physically, emotionally, mentally, and to ask her to then relocate was just too much. So the plan for that winter was for my dad to go to Florida and then my mom would visit him on her winter break from school. So this was kind of the first test of here's here's where we can spend the winter and we'll see how it goes. And he was he was mobile enough and could take care of himself enough to get by on his own being in Florida by himself. Yes. So I took the trip, the initial trip down to make sure that his flight down was comfortable. I got him set up in the extended stay. I made friends with the hotel staff so they understood who my dad was. He had contacts with a visiting nurse association. So he had everything that he needed to be well while he was there. And of course, our family was in constant contact with him, you know, daily. And as long as he had his cigarettes and his scooter, he was the happiest you'd ever see him. And then your mom came to visit. Yeah. She visited at the extended stay, and then they decided to book a room for a night or two at the Polynesian on Disney property. It was their hotel, and they wanted to reconnect, enjoy the park together. They had dinner. And then later that night, my dad had a heart attack. His body was done. Trisha's mom, Christine. Every time I called him, when he was there for the, those three or four weeks he was there, um, and in uh, the extended stay, he always sounded winded. He was breathing heavy. He, he couldn't breathe. He couldn't catch his breath. So then I says, Paul, I'm going to call 911. No, 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 wait. It's okay. This happens all the time. So I think he was having a heart attack over the past few weeks. I know he was. Then he, he then I finally called him. And then he, then his last words to me were, Christine, I can't breathe. They ring in my mind every day. Looking back, we think he knew. And he was holding out for my mom. So we were very grateful that he had my mom with him when it happened. And not that you could ever prepare yourself, but we knew that my dad was on borrowed time through his choices, despite our effort. And so uh, 911 was called, and my dad was taken to Celebration Hospital, which... I think Celebration used to be a part of Disney, uh, so very close to Disney property. And my mom called my sister and I, and we immediately flew down to be with our parents. My dad had lost consciousness as a result of the heart attack and never regained it. He was in the hospital for a few days, and we were hoping for him to get better, and he never did. The hospital did scans on his brain and told my mom that he was deprived of oxygen for so long that his brain was permanently damaged. And if he regained consciousness, he would not be able to eat on his own or speak and would require 24-hour care 
either at a nursing home or some facility that was equipped to deal with his needs. So my mom had to break this news to my sister and I, and I'll never forget it because we were standing in the hallway, my mom, my sister, and I in a little bit of a circle, and my mom is explaining to us what the doctors told her and what my dad's life would look like if he regained consciousness. And my mom and I went quiet, and I was processing the news internally. I think my mom was too. And my sister, who is an incredibly gentle soul, she's not assertive, said in the most firm voice I have ever heard out of her mouth. And with so much conviction, she said, no. And my mom and I like snapped out of it and said, you're right. No, he wouldn't want that at all. He wanted his freedom. He lived the way he wanted to live no matter what. So my mom uh, contacted a priest. My family is Catholic. They gave my dad his last rites. He was removed from life support. And he passed away at age 52. So young. So young. And as I get older, I'm 40. As I get older, it blows my mind just how young my dad was when he passed. It's very sad. Yeah, 52, it's hardly middle-aged. Hardly. Yeah. Unbelievable. So now you and your mom and Heather are in Florida, and you'd mentioned that you weren't quite fully grieving yet at that time. Why not? What what, what was going on there? We went into like a logistics mode. I think we suddenly felt like we were on another planet. It was very much, okay, what do we do now? The fact that he was truly gone did not hit us for quite some time. Just because there were a lot of details you had to take care of. Yes. We were at his hotel, the extended stay. So my mom and dad had their reservation at the Polynesian, and then that ended. And so my dad made friends with the hotel staff, and they became fond of him, which was very easy to do. And they transferred the reservation to my mom, and we all stayed in his room to handle these next steps because we were truly at a loss of what what do we do now? So we started to donate his clothing and uh, his scooter and things that we couldn't ship back or we you know wouldn't ship back with us. Like, what do you do? We just went robotic. And the hospital goes into next step modes as well because they wanted to know what to do with my dad so my my mom had him cremated and i remember we're in the hotel room and the crematory director knocks on the door and he's got a box in his hands and comes into the room there's a you know a table in hotel rooms like a desk he pulls out this bag of ash and goes here's paul and he plops it on the table in a hotel room in florida turns on his heel and walks out And that was it. And my mom and my sister look at each other like we're on some kind of hidden camera TV show. It all happened, you know, over the course of a couple days. And now here we are. My mom and I lock eyes. And she says, what are we going to do? And I say, we scatter them in Disney. People that are listening to this right now, Just got a big smile (laughs) because they know what's coming. They know what's coming. So you're talking about logistics. Yeah. Obviously, Disney does not allow this. No. And you had to figure out how how to do it anyway. Yes. What's your plan? 
at that time, uh, Magic Kingdom. So when my family thinks Disney, we think the Magic Kingdom, which is Disney's main park. That's the one with the castle. And that location, I think they all do, but that one definitely at that time did bag searches. They have since added medical metal detectors, but back then it was just bag searches upon entry. So I knew we can't just bring a bag of ash into the park. So it's also a bit of a, a dark Disney secret that people have scattered ashes before. So we weren't going to be the first. And I was thinking maybe they're expecting if we act a certain way, like I didn't want to act shady and draw attention. So we didn't have a car, but the extended stay was on a main road and we could walk to a gift shop. So I had the idea of walking to a gift shop and buying one of those metal water bottles so you couldn't see the contents. And presumably, the cast members that are searching the bag just assume it was a water bottle and not some kind of de facto urn. And so we did that, got a water bottle, go back to the hotel. I'm at the hotel room's table, pouring ashes into the bottle. And I thought it would be like pouring sand, but no, it is quite messy. And so now I am wiping my dad off the hotel room table like toast crumbs and kind of brushing my hands together over the bottle to get all of the ash in, thinking like, what is this? What are we doing? Still, grief hasn't hit. Now it's just like, I'm in operation scatter ashes in Disney. I put the bottle of ash in my bag. We get tickets to go to the Magic Kingdom. We're walking to the security entry, and I am anxious. I thought I might get caught. I might go to Disney jail, which is an actual thing. And I thought maybe we would get caught and banned in perpetuity from all of these parks. And so we get to a section where if you've got a bag, you get checked. If you don't have a bag, you don't get checked. So my mom and my sister go through. I'm the one getting checked. You know, I just, I have to say this, this feels like a scene from Locked Up Abroad. Yes. You know, where somebody's trying to get through airport security and they know they've got a little bag of cocaine in one of their carry-ons or something, you know? Yes. And I was terrified if they had found it, I was playing through my head. What are they going to say? Like, hey, what is this? And then what do I say? And what do I do? So all of this is going through my head and I can barely hear what the security person is saying, but, you know, they open your bag, they kind of do a little rifling through. I'm looking at the water bottle the whole time thinking, do they open it just to make sure there's no alcohol in it? Or, you know, is there a protocol I wasn't aware of? But they took a look and they kind of slid it by and said, okay, go ahead. And we were in. It may have come down to, you know, which particular agent you happen to go through, but I'm sure they're most of the time they see so many bags and bottles and everything come through all day and they've got a long line of people they've got to deal with. I think that played to your advantage. Yeah, I think the crowd was definitely on our side. We get through and now we feel like we're on another planet, completely on another planet. I remember everything that I looked at seemed to have a haze over it. And I felt like I was walking through jello. And it wasn't just the Florida humidity. It was a very strange feeling. Our emotions had not caught up to us. You know, dad's gone, still doesn't feel like he's gone. We're at the Magic Kingdom, but my dad's not at the Magic Kingdom. We're about to scatter ashes like so otherworldly. And we went directly to the restrooms as our like first stop to kind of collect ourselves. And so we got dad through, but we haven't scattered anything yet. And I was worried that if we were just standing around pouring ashes into our hands out in the open, it would definitely draw attention. So 
in the bathroom stall, I open up the bottle. I'm like, you get some ash and you get some ash. So I pour ashes into my hand, my sister's hand, my mother's hand, and we clench our fists and we would carry his ashes in our clenched fists to ride number one, which was the Carousel of Progress. So my dad's favorite rides were the Carousel of Progress, Space Mountain, Peter Pan's Flight, and fittingly, the Haunted Mansion. And then his favorite hotel was the Polynesian. So these were the places that we intended to go. You had your agenda. We had the agenda. Can you describe the Carousel of Progress for people who haven't been there? Yeah, absolutely. So it is a theater. Think of like a movie theater. Uh, but instead of a screen, it's a stage that has animatronic characters. And the stage moves around the characters. So the only place to scatter ashes inside would be on the theater floor, which felt really rude. So instead, we chose to scatter in the flower beds that are out front, in, in front of the ride. And so... So that's kind of out in the open. Very much so. Oh, yes. Anyone could see. My mom did a very obvious look around and like tossed a handful like she was feeding pigeons. And I remember going, Mom! I like scream whisper, Mom, that's too obvious. So I had to demonstrate, like, just look at the flowers and then just open your hand and let it let it go. And so then I did it and then my sister did it. And it was like, okay, first ride down. Let's go back to the restrooms and then put more ash in our hands. And that's the way that it went between each ride. We would go somewhere like a restroom and grab more ash. So there's the carousel of progress. And then a very short distance away is Space Mountain, which is a roller coaster in the dark. So I felt like you're completely indoors. It's pitch black. So I thought, oh, this is good. This will, will be less likely to draw attention. And it's a three people sit in a coaster cart. It's kind of like a bobsled. You're sit seated one behind the other. So it's, you know, me and my mom, and my sister can all sit in the same cart. And then it was my turn to get too comfortable because we're going down this hill and the ride is very quick as a, as a roller coaster is. And I kind of toss exuberantly the ash because now I'm feeling like, oh, this is for my dad and toss. And I get an entire face full of ash blown back at me. And that's when I laugh and then I start to cry. And because my dad would have loved to have seen that, that would have tickled him very much. And he was there for when it happened. Yeah. Yes, he was. Peter Pan's flight. So you sit in a boat. That's what your cart looks like. And it's suspended from the ceiling. And if you look down, you see London because Peter Pan takes place in London. And it was beautiful. And that one was easy. We just kind of held our hands over the side of the boat and kind of gently opened them and the ash hit the floor. And then we started walking over to the haunted mansion. This is the strongest memory my mom, my sister and I have. So as we're walking over, the haunted mansion is on the other side of the park. This parade seemingly started all around us. I can't really articulate it, but it was as if my ears were blocked and suddenly unblocked. And I look around and there's this parade happening. And parades happen throughout the day at the Magic Kingdom, but never before or since have I seen this particular parade. And characters are singing and dancing on a float. And the song that they're singing and dancing is Shake a Tail Feather by Ray Charles. And that was a favorite of my dad's. My dad loved the movie, The Blues Brothers, and it includes Ray Charles singing that song. And we all felt something. We all felt my dad. We all looked at each other and we knew something is happening. It felt like 
he was all around us. And I, I mentioned that my family is Catholic. I'm an atheist. And I share that because we all felt something. And so my atheism, which is not a, a disbelief in a god or gods, it's important that I share that. I just lack a belief in a god or god. So uh, I hope I'm wrong. I, I'd love to see my dad again. But it added an additional struggle to my grief. If I believed in heaven, I could believe that my dad is in a better place or that he's really, you know, maybe he's reunited with loved ones or that I'd see him again, but I don't. But to feel that moment, never before or since have I felt something like that, that comforted me and let me know like my dad is around us and he's okay and now he's free so you felt that and it didn't necessarily need to be a religious thing for you but it could be spiritual is that how you would describe that you think yeah i would agree with that i do believe that energy has to go somewhere and maybe that's where my dad's energy ended up. It was a really, it was a good moment. So the Haunted Mansion is another dark ride. It's a haunted house. And instead of walking through it, you sit in a buggy and it takes you through this haunted house. And so because it's all dark, we felt that we wouldn't be seen but the reality is that the magic kingdom has video everywhere and they can see visitors in dark rides they can see you everywhere so we did the thing where we kind of put our arms over the side of the buggy and and sprinkled there's a cemetery scene in the ride and that's what felt to be most appropriate so we sprinkled him in the cemetery and i don't mean to to kind of dismiss this, but I, I am a realist and I knew that he probably was vacuumed up that night, but it didn't matter. Nothing could capture or take away what we did that day for him. Nothing could take away the peace that it brought to all of us and just the, the silly kind of adventure that was how we memorialized my dad. Yeah, it seems like the perfect way to honor him. Yeah. So you had one spot left. We did. So we took the monorail, which is a suspended subway of sorts that will travel from the Magic Kingdom to a few other places, one of them being the Polynesian, which was my parents' place. And so uh, it's night at this time. and. We walk towards the lake. It's called Bay Lake and it's got sand. And today you can't reach the water, but then you could. You could stand in it if you wanted to. And we kind of toss ash in the water and we're mixing it into the sand and we're looking at the castle across the water and it's like dead everywhere. It was, uh, it was good. It was a good ending to all of that. And we didn't have a funeral. My dad didn't want one. What we did that day was exactly what he would have wanted. And my mom got to spend time with my dad at their place, the happiest place on earth for them. And as the, the rest of the moments unfolded from letting my dad go to then honoring him with how we kind of snuck him into the park it bonded my mom and my sister and I probably not surprising that we share a gallows humor together so we were able to uh laugh and create our own peace honor my dad and then surround my mom in comfort 
It was a really beautiful experience. It it sounds like so much better than a formal funeral service. It just sounds more appropriate for him. Yes. Yeah, for us it was. I think the it was so important for us to listen to my dad cuz he always said who he was. He never tried to be anything other than Paul. And he would drive you crazy being Paul, but you couldn't help but adore him and being able to give him that last honor of, we see you, we know what you want, we're going to make it happen no matter what it takes. And yeah, to your point, it was the most appropriate way to say goodbye. Once again, Trisha's mom. I felt like I felt exuberant because I was doing his wishes. It didn't, it didn't feel weird. I mean, I, I felt a little funny when I was trying to do it because I was sure that someone's going to arrest me and say, okay, you're going to be in prison for life for doing this. But, uh, but no, I, I, felt, I felt released. I felt like I was doing his, his wishes and I knew he was happy with it. I knew it. And we did the right thing. And I do want to go back again, but I'd like to go back to a different hotel. And I want to revisit it a different way so that I can still remember him, but remember him and show him the new Disney in my heart. Have you been back to Disney World since then? Yes, both both with my husband and I. We actually honeymooned there ourselves. And I've been back with just me and my mom on, on girls trips. And me, my mom, my sister have been back as a family as well. It continues to be a family tradition, it sounds like. Yeah. And in a way, it's how we visit my dad. Which sounds silly, in a way, saying it out loud, but he, that's where he is. That's where we feel him the most. That's where we have our best memories. So, as much as it is just a, f- a fun place to spend time and have a vacation. It does have a deeper meaning for my mom and my sister and I that we get to, we get to revisit my dad any, anywhere we go on the property. And you don't have to go to a cemetery to do that. No. We didn't plan this, you and I, but you've told me that today, is, as we record this, today is your dad's birthday. It is. It is so wild how it worked out, but he would have been 66 years old today. What, what's your favorite memory of your dad? He would make up his own song lyrics. So I mentioned how much my dad loved the Aladdin soundtrack. So instead of singing, um, there was a line that was, Prince Ali, fabulous he, Ali Ababwa. So instead of saying that, he would sing, and this is out loud, like around the house or in the car, wherever, he would say, Prince Ali, fabulously, look at his outfit. Like he would just, he would make up silly lyrics. He would have our family in stitches. And when we talk about my dad, we'll sing his songs instead of the actual lyrics because he had so many for all these different songs. And what endears me beyond that is my husband does the same thing and they never met. So it's kind of like, it's special. That's so interesting. You know, I'm sure you've heard this phrase that a daughter marries her father. Yes. It sounds like it's come true in your, in your situation. Yes, I think so. I think my husband and my dad would have been best friends and all of the wonderful characteristics that my dad has. I see it in my husband and my sister is married. She's got a six-year-old daughter and her husband possesses a lot of, uh, the, of certainly the hardworking qualities 
that my dad had. So it's like we get to live in our own relationships, you know, aspects of our dad. It's it's been really nice. What's your reason for wanting to share this the story of your dad? I wanted to share it because there isn't a normal way or a standard way to memorialize someone or to grieve. And I think this is kind of an oddball one. So it gives me the opportunity to share a unique story. And our actions brought us so much comfort in our grief. My hope is that if anything, people can relate to this and feel like they can grieve and, and memorialize someone in their own way as well. If you'd like to see some of Trisha's family pictures with her parents at Disney World, those are in the show notes at whatwasthatlike.com slash 139. You might be surprised at how many people sprinkle the ashes of their loved ones at Disney. It happens pretty regularly. But if you've ever been to Disney World, you didn't notice it. That's because Disney is very much aware that this happens, and they are on top of cleaning things up. They even have special vacuums for this, so it doesn't affect anyone's experience at any of the parks. So millions of people keep going there, and they love it, because it really is the happiest place on earth. I have a couple of things I want to share with you. Earlier this week, we celebrated Mother's Day. If you're a mother, I hope you had an amazing day with your family or your friends. But you might be listening to this right now, and you're a mother who's struggling. If you have a teenager, you might be having a really difficult time And maybe Mother's Day wasn't so great because of the tension in that parent-teenager relationship. It might seem that life is just one battle after another with your child. Of course you love them, but you might feel really stressed out by the constant fight. Well, I have something for you today. This is just for you. Take a few minutes and listen to the letter your teenager can't write you. Dear parent, this is the letter I wish I could write. This fight we are in right now, I need it. I need this fight. I can't tell you this because I don't have the language for it and it wouldn't make sense anyway. But I need this fight. Badly. I need to hate you right now, and I need you to survive it. I need you to survive my hating you and you hating me. I need this fight even though I hate it too. It doesn't matter what this fight is even about. Curfew, homework, laundry, my messy room, going out, staying in, leaving, not leaving, boyfriend, girlfriend, no friends, bad friends. It doesn't matter. I need to fight you on it, and I need you to fight me back. I desperately need you to hold the other end of the rope, to hang on tightly while I thrash on the other end, while I find the handholds and footholds in this new world I feel like I am in. I used to know who I was, who you were, who we were. But right now, I don't. Right now, I am looking for my edges, and I can sometimes only find them when I am pulling on you. When I push everything I used to know to its edge. Then I feel like I exist, and for a minute, I can breathe. I know you long for the sweeter kid that I was. I know this because I long for that kid too, and some of that longing is what is so painful for me right now. I need this fight, and I need to see that no matter how bad or big my feelings are, they won't destroy you or me. I need you to love me even at my worst, 
even when it looks like I don't love you. I need you to love yourself and me for the both of us right now. I know it sucks to be disliked and labeled the bad guy. I feel the same way on the inside, but I need you to tolerate it and get other grown-ups to help you. Because I can't right now. If you want to get all of your grown-up friends together and have a surviving your teenager support group rage fest, that's fine with me. Or talk about me behind my back. I don't care. Just don't give up on me. Don't give up on this fight. I need it. This is the fight that will teach me that my shadow is not bigger than my light. This is the fight that will teach me that bad feelings don't mean the end of a relationship. This is the fight that will teach me how to listen to myself, even when it might disappoint others. And this particular fight will end. Like any storm, it will blow over. And I will forget. And you will forget. And then it will come back. And I will need you to hang on to the rope again. I will need this over and over for years. I know there is nothing inherently satisfying in this job for you. I know I will likely never thank you for it or even acknowledge your side of it. In fact, I will probably criticize you for all this hard work. It will seem like nothing you do will be enough. And yet, I am relying entirely on your ability to stay in this fight. No matter how much I argue, no matter how much I sulk, no matter how silent I get. Please hang on to the other end of the rope and know that you are doing the most important job that anyone could possibly be doing for me right now. Love, your teenager. Hang in there, moms. And dads, too. And I also got this voicemail from Russell with more appreciation for the moms. Hey, Scott. Russell here. I've been binging What Was That Like for the past month. And though many of our episodes are perspective changing, what has rattled my brain the most has been the first-hand account of giving birth. It's really shone a light on how this otherwise beautiful miracle of life can be scary, intensely misunderstood, and ironically, deadly. So with Mother's Day just around the corner, I wanted to leave a message of gratitude to all the moms listening, especially my own mother, Anne, and my partner, Kristen. Happy Mother's Day. Graphics for this episode were created by Bob Bretz. Full episode transcription was created by James Lye. The Letter Your Teenager Can't Write You was originally written by Gretchen Smeltzer. It was read for us today by L. Ray James. If you need a voiceover artist, you can hear samples of their work online. There's a link to that in the show notes. And now, this week's listener story. It's how we end every episode. I'll bet you have a story you can tell in about 5 to 10 minutes. And if you do, record it on your phone and email it to me. Scott at whatwasthatlike.com This one is about a mom who had to perform CPR on her daughter. And I'm going to go ahead with a spoiler so you don't have to worry about listening to it. It has a happy ending. Stay safe, and I'll see you in two weeks. To give you a little background, my husband Keith and I were 42 at the time this happened. Our daughter was almost six. I am a licensed practical nurse and was working in a clinic at the time. My husband is a maintenance worker employed in a foundry. We had a hard time getting pregnant and were only able to have one child. We live in Minnesota and it was a very warm Sunday afternoon in August and we were all outside cooling off in our above ground pool we had put up for the summer. It wasn't very large or deep, but we still had a lot of fun in it. I took a break to sit on the patio and relax about 15 to 20 feet from the pool and Keith had gone inside to use the bathroom. Neither one of us was drinking alcohol, and we don't use drugs. Our daughter stayed in the pool doing her favorite activity, diving for toys that sink to the bottom. She would go down and gather all of them and ask us to throw them again while she closed her eyes so she couldn't see where they landed. Keith came back outside, and we started talking. It was less than a minute later when he asked me 
where she was since he couldn't see or hear her. I said she was going down for dive sticks and we started talking again. It was only another minute when we realized it had been too long, so he ran to the pool and saw her lying on the bottom. Somehow he was able to reach over the pool, grab her suit, and pull her out. We still have no idea how this happened, but are so grateful that he was able to do this. Immediately, I ran over to where he put her on the grass and saw that her lips were blue and she wasn't breathing. Being a nurse since I was 20 years old, I have taken many CPR classes and have done it on people, but they were patients in a nursing home, not our child, and I had others with me to help. I forgot all of my training and was at a loss as to what I should do. I started praying and screaming to call 911, but we couldn't find a cell phone. We later found it under a towel. Keith did eventually find a phone, and they almost sent a helicopter to come to help us, but it turned out that it wasn't needed. Because it was hot, our neighbors had their windows closed with air conditioning on and didn't see us or hear us, even though they were all home and our houses are close together. I started praying again and doing rescue breathing, not even thinking to feel for a pulse. After a few breaths, nothing was happening, so I started chest compressions, and after about 20 to 30 seconds, she started coughing and throwing up a bit. It was at that time that the first responders came running around the back of the house to help. She was conscious by this point, but not responding. I'll never forget the way this kind man instructed us to get changed, grab clothes, and shoes for her, along with her favorite toy or blanket, while they got her loaded. He made made sure our pets were inside and locked up our house while we were headed to the hospital. Their paramedics at first wanted Keith in back with her since he was calming her down once she came to as she was hysterical, and they told me to drive myself the 30 minutes to the closest hospital. The driver heard this and said I was going to ride up front with him since our town was completely under road construction and he didn't know the back roads, so that is what I did. I immediately called my family as they only live a couple blocks away and they also headed to the hospital. Our small town has a siren that blows for emergencies, so they had heard the siren but had no idea it was for her. We got to the emergency room, and there was a discussion of flying her to a bigger hospital, but one doctor said she was comfortable keeping her local. She does have a history of asthma, and that had concerned them. She spent the night in the pediatric intensive care unit and had her own private nurse. Once she got to the floor, the nurses fought over who got to give her a new American Girl doll as hundreds were donated for girls her age. She quickly learned how to use the adjustable bed and call light and thought they were the best thing ever. I drove back home to get clothes for us because she said I would know where to find things before dad would. And when I came back, she was showing off her new skills with the bed and call light. By two o'clock in the morning, she was done sleeping. So the nurse took her to the nurse's station to play games so we could sleep. We went home that morning, and the next day, her and I and the neighbor girls went back into the pool. I told her she couldn't live her life in fear, and she loved swimming. She agreed, but did wear a life jacket for the first few minutes, and I was right by her side. Now, I bet you're wondering what happened. It turns out she started twirling, ballerina style, got dizzy, and fell. They told us a child will instantly panic when they go underwater by accident, and they think that is what happened. The water was not over her head. She could swim and was very comfortable around water. A month later, we put her in private swim lessons at age six. She started out in level two, and by spring, she completed all of them except lifeguard training that she was too young for. Remember, she was only six. She still loves swimming, but gets nervous when the water is over eight feet. We did a lot of praying, and I really struggled with guilt as I was alone outside and should have been watching her better. While she was in the ICU, I asked Keith if he and I were okay. He said we both should have been watching her and we both saved her and that we were just fine. He and I are not ones to fight and we weren't going to start then.